Christianity is not just another worldview, it is the one true story of reality, resonating deep within each person that it touches. It is true at all times, for all people, and at all places. The biblical narrative outlines how God is the Creator, how He relates to our fallenness, and how He is working to reconcile the world to its intended purpose. Within this meta-narrative, or big story, we see where God is directing history and how He will ultimately defeat all opposition. Welcome to On Mission, the preaching ministry of Edgewood Baptist Church in Rock Island. When we gather together, we meet on 38th Street, and when we're scattered, we strive to live on mission all over the Quad Cities area. Listen now to part two of a message called The Real Reality. In his book, The Story of Reality, Greg Kokel argues that a true worldview must answer these four worldview questions. And as you observe these questions, in your own mind, think, how does the Bible address these four questions? Where did we come from? What is our problem? What is the solution? And how will things end for us? Almost every good story has these four parts. It has a beginning which sets the stage, which tells you who the main characters are and how the story gets rolling. Then something goes wrong and eventually this conflict gets corrected and the wrong gets fixed. Finally, the parts of the plot resolve themselves into a satisfying ending. The Christian narrative is different from all other stories because it doesn't start with once upon a time. No, it starts with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The Bible is not a fable. It's not fiction. It's factual. It's accurate because it's the real reality. It's the mega narrative of the way the world really is. So creation tells us how things began and where everything came from. The fall describes the problem, the big problem. Problem. So you see creation, Genesis 1 and 2, you get to chapter 3, sin, and then you see its effects all throughout Scripture. Redemption gives us the solution, which is Jesus Christ, and restoration describes what the world will look like once the repair takes place. When I was working on this sermon this week, I was at a coffee shop a guy came up to me and he, he kind of looked at me, he smiled, I smiled at him and he looked at my table. I had a, a table there and I had my Bible open, I had notes everywhere, I had my laptop and he kept looking at the table and he's like, what are you doing? What, what are you working on? And I smiled inside and I said, Lord, thank you for this opportunity. So I told him I was working on four words to describe the entire storyline of the Bible. He looked quizzical. He's like, and then he offered his own suggestion. He said, in God we trust? <laughs> I told him that was a pretty good answer. And then I had the opportunity to go over creation that God created us and he loves us and that we have a problem. That problem is sin and that he sent his son Jesus to pay the price for our sin and he was raised from the dead on the third day and Jesus is gonna make all things right after the day of judgment. 
He said he found those to be helpful. I was able to bridge into the gospel and invited him to church. So one reason we're going over this is so that we get these four key elements, these four key corner pieces in our minds because it will help us understand the Bible and will help us be able to communicate the Bible to those who don't understand it. See, one reason the message of Christianity no longer makes sense to people in our pluralistic society is because they're not familiar with the starting point. Concepts like sin and salvation, well, they don't make much sense to a lot of people. Think with me about the Apostle Paul's approach in the book of Acts when he talked to Jewish people he could tie into their longing for a coming Messiah. He could reference things from the Old Testament. But when speaking to pagan Gentiles with multiple worldviews, it was imperative to begin at a more foundational level. And that's precisely the situation the Apostle Paul faced when he came to the city of Athens. I have been in this passage several times before. We need to come back to it because it is like the premier passage for how we can communicate the gospel in, in, while we're around people with different world views. So I invite you to turn to Acts chapter 17. Listen as I read verses 16 to 18. Now while Paul was waiting for them in Athens. So he had been bounced out of Berea. He had to leave. He went to Athens, this beautiful, well-known city. He was in Athens waiting for the rest of the team to catch up. When Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So what did he do? Well, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout person, so he went where the religious people were, the, those with an Old Testament background, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Would you observe, instead of being impressed with what Paul saw in this beautiful city, Verse 16 says, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. That phrase, full of idols, means the city was covered with or under idols. There were gobs of gods everywhere. One ancient writer estimated there were 30,000 gods in the city, making it easier to bump into an idol, a false religion, to bump into an idol than an individual. When the weather's nice, I like to get up early on Sundays and go for a prayer run. Um, I'm listening to Voice of the Martyrs while I'm running, and I run down Kennedy Drive in Moline, and I first start at Homewood Evangelical Free Church. I'm in their parking lot. I know Pastor Mark and Andy, and they are gospel guys. I pray for Homewood as they proclaim the gospel. 
Then I come out of that parking lot and I go into Christ the King Catholic Church's parking lot and I'm praying there that they would understand God's grace and the glory of the gospel. I was raised Catholic, so my heart is for Catholics to come to know Jesus. And then I leave that parking lot and I go in the parking lot of North Crest Calvary Baptist Church. Their senior their pastor just retired. I'm praying for them that God would lead them to a new pastor and praying they'll be faithful in their proclamation of the gospel. And then I cross the street and I go into the parking lot of the Mormon church. And I'm praying there some warfare prayers. I'm, I'm praying that they would understand grace. And then I'm in the parking lot of the Greek Orthodox church and, and then I end at the Muslim mosque. And often when I'm in that parking lot, I'm feeling heaviness, but I'm also feeling boldness as I pray. And while I'm in that parking lot today, the podcast I was listening to, there's a a missionary in a Muslim country who is describing how millions of Muslims are coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And it hit me. You and I live in Athens today. We live surrounded by all these different world views. Now, they might not always be obvious, but when you talk to somebody, when you observe somebody, you can see it. So that word for provoked is where we get the word seizure from. Paul was so morally shocked when he saw all this idol worship, his insides convulsed. He was angry, he was agitated, he was deeply distressed about the depth of their depravity. Has that ever happened to you? You see something and you're like, ah. You hear something on the news, you read something. It happened to me this week, something on my news feed. It was repulsive, it was revolting, it was repugnant. I felt nauseous. I didn't go looking for it, it was just there. My guess is you've had to look away. I hope you look away. One pastor put it like this, if you're not filled with indignation, you will not have courage to do what Paul did. But if you only have indignation, you won't have the gentleness that you need. Some time ago, I was behind a car filled with bumper stickers. You ever seen a car like that? It's not just on the bumper, it was like on the trunk, on the back window. There were bumper stickers everywhere and I'm trying to read them and there were all different messages but one jumped out at me. Here's what it said. Don't mess with me, I have more gods than you do. I got a little bit closer and underneath were nine symbols representing these idols. It made me grieve. Honestly, I had to fight back the temptation to speed up, roll down my window, and yell, oh yeah, my God is the maker of heaven and earth, and he's mightier than any of your so-called God. Just kidding, I didn't do that. (laughs) But I say that to say this. That's not the approach Paul took. He didn't start yelling at people. He he didn't, like, I gotta get out of here. No, he didn't do that. He didn't yell at people made in the image of God. Verse 17 tells us he built bridges with those in the marketplace. And would you observe, he did it daily, every day. 
In verse 18, we're introduced to two groups of philosophers. They represent two major worldviews at that time. They were popular, and there was a lot of discussion about these. The first worldview, well, they were called the Epicureans. The Epicureans were atheists. They denied God's existence and the afterlife. They were content to just live for today. That's why I have orange glasses on. They're just out to party. They're out to have a good time. If they had a motto, it would be this. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Do you know any Epicureans in the Quad Cities? You do. Is there an Epicurean living inside of you? I mean, if you're honest, it's hard to be honest, but if you're honest, is that how you're living? To maximize pleasure and minimize pain, that's what you're all about? Well, the Stoics, well, they were pantheists. Pantheists believe everything was God and God was in everything. Stoics strive to live in harmony with nature, focusing on self-control. That's the view of their world. Their self-control, self-sufficiency, their attitude toward life was one of ultimate resignation. If they had a motto, it would be something like, grin and bear it. Apathy was regarded as the highest virtue in life. Maybe a modern-day Stoic, if you were to ask them how they're doing, getting by, just hanging out, doing nothing, just waiting for another day. Do you know anybody just going through the motions? You do. Any Stoicism in your life? Or you're like, uh, I'm on autopilot. I'm flat, I'm just stumbling through life. Now, some of these proud philosophers treated Paul with utter disdain. That word babbler, I thought first when I read that it said bubbler in Wisconsin, that's a water fountain, it's not that. Babbler is a seed picker. Their tone, well, was one of condescension. So these learned philosophers, they see Paul and they're like, you're like a seed picker. They were condescending, rude to him. Well, let me just pause here to say, if you have the courage today to stand up for biblical truth, look out. If you say marriage is one man and one woman in a covenant for life. Expect pushback. If you say there are two genders and you were created as a male or a female when you were in your mother's womb, hold on. If you say life begins at conception, hold on. If you say Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven, he's the only way to get there. It's not by performance, it's not by penance, it's not by any other way. It's only through Jesus. You better get ready. See, they saw Paul 
It's just like a little bird in the marketplace flitting around, pecking at seeds. So they called him a babbler. And notice, though, that some were interested. They say, hey, Paul, we want to learn more about this new teaching. And so they bring him to the Areopagus. That's the highest court in Athens. Now, as we walk through this text, let's see Paul's approach as a model for us as we live on mission with the gospel among intelligent, atheistic, pleasure-seeking, self-sufficient, and apathetic people in our own lives. Paul's approach, very clear, very concise very much to the point. The Epicureans were all about enjoying life. The Stoics focused on enduring life. Let's learn how Paul pointed them to eternal life. Let's come back to the name of this series, Unshaken and Unashamed. It's time for us, church, to be unshaken in what we believe and unashamed of the gospel. Psalm 62, 2, he alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I will not be greatly shaken. Romans 1, 16, for I am unashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to the Jew first and then to the Greek. Notice two things Paul does to build bridges before he shares the meta-narrative or grand story of scripture. First, affirm what you can. Look at verse 22. So here's Paul. He knows what kind of environment he's in. He stands up in the midst of the Areopagus and he says, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Oh, don't miss this. He's repulsed by their idols, but he was respectful. What he saw nauseated him, but doesn't get nasty with people made in the image of God. He didn't denounce them or attack their idolatry. In fact, he paid them a compliment. Oh, that's a good spot for us to ask a question. Do we look for ways to compliment those who are not yet Christians? Or are we looking just to show that we're right and they're wrong? Are we secretly angry with people because of how they're living? Notice what he does next. Address their needs. Verse 23. For as I passed along, I observed the objects of your worship. I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. That word observe means to behold attentively. The Athenians had created an altar to an unknown God. Here's why. They had thousands of gods, but they didn't want to leave one out because they were afraid if they leave that God out, he's going to come and cause trouble in their lives. So they created this altar to the unknown God. Paul's observing that, and so Paul says, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. <laughs> the phrase worship as unknown literally means in ignorance. It's as if he's saying, you admit there's a God you don't know. I happen to know that God, and I'm not going to proclaim him to you. So after affirming them, addressing their needs, Paul told the story of God's glory, and he focuses on these four foundational truths, creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. The story of God is all about the glory of God. Let's look at these four corner pieces of the puzzle now. Creation. Paul launches into a theology lesson by taking them to the book of Genesis without them knowing he's doing that because they didn't know the book of Genesis. Verse 24, the God 
God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. So in the midst of multiple gods, all these diverse worldviews, Paul quickly contrasted the true God with the innumerable idols. Notice how he says it, the God. There's only one God. And from there, Paul built the Christian worldview one puzzle piece at a time by focusing on how God created humans. Verse 26, everyone can be traced back to Adam. He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. In verse 27, he proclaimed how God put within people a desire to know him, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. And then in verse 28, Paul made another cultural connection. He quotes from two of their pagan poets. For in him we live and move and have our being as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. In our culture, it would be like using a line from a current movie or a lyric from a top song. In verse 29, he established the uniqueness of the one true God who doesn't live in buildings or can be depicted by statues. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone in image formed by the art and imagination of man. Now, before moving on, If you just look at Paul's message here to the Athenians, he spends most of the time on who God is and what God has done. That God exists and he's different than those idols. He's the one true God and God is the creator. That's a good word for us today because many today don't understand who God is and don't understand that God created us. Then he moves to the fall. After establishing God as creator, he introduced the idea of our deep brokenness. Notice verse 30. He calls people to repentance. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Friends, there's an overemphasis on sappy, sentimental spirituality today and easy believism. Friends, we must never stop preaching repentance. We must reclaim this important doctrine. Jesus preached it, Matthew 4, 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Notice next, redemption. After establishing that everyone is a sinner in need of repentance, we must move to who Christ is and why he came. This is how Paul did. He does it very briefly. Look at the last part of verse 31. He's given assurance to all by raising him, Jesus, from the dead. The resurrection is proof Jesus is God and he is alive. He's conquered depravity. He's conquered death. And he's conquered the devil himself. And then restoration. Consider the first part of verse 31. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. Everyone will face the judgment of Jesus. The day of judgment is fixed and inescapable. Note, Paul was not afraid to speak of judgment. He did not shrink back from speaking about the truth of the resurrection, even though he knew many of his listeners would not want to hear it. He celebrated the supremacy of Christ. He didn't shy away from speaking about sin and was only after laying the groundwork of who God is as creator, who we are as humans, in our relationship to him that Paul explained how sin and guilt are taken away by the Redeemer, all ultimately pointing to the ultimate 
ultimate restoration. Friends, as God gives you opportunity, build bridges and speak boldly for Christ. Be unshaken in what you believe and be unashamed of the gospel. Tell people that God is their creator, that sin is our problem, that Jesus died in our place and call them to repentance in light of the resurrection because judgment is coming. Now the responses to Paul's message are still common today. Some rejected, others were reluctant and a few received. Many will reject, some will be reluctant and a handful will receive. What about you? Have you been rejecting the gospel or simply reluctant? And perhaps you're ready right now to believe and receive the free gift of eternal life. If you're already a Christ follower, well, would you build bridges with people and look for ways to tell the story about God's glory and use creation, fall, redemption, and restoration as your outline? Indeed, something special is happening. Make sure it's happening in your life. Are you unshaken in what you believe? And are you unashamed of the gospel? Have you been rejecting the gospel? Or have you been reluctant? If you haven't done so, it's time to repent and receive the free gift of eternal life. Eternity hangs in the balance. It's time to surrender fully and completely to Him. Right now, today, totally. Thanks for joining us for On Mission. If you'd like to listen to this message again, you can now download episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or Google Podcasts by going to edgewoodbaptist.net. We'd love to have you as a guest at one of our three weekend services, Saturday at 5 or Sunday at 9 or 1045. My name is Matt Williams, and I'm a member of Edgewood. Ethan Curry, also an Edgewood member, is serving as the producer of this program. We look forward to connecting with you again next weekend as we learn more about how to live on mission. Until then, go deep in God's Word and keep applying it to your world. On Mission is furnished by Edgewood Baptist in Rock Island, Illinois.